0: This is a major achievement. With CBS News Chief Washington Correspondent. Major Garrett. Yes, CBS. Yes, I. Major Garrett. Major, that's nonsense. And you should know better. Is Major out of the doghouse? (laughs) The answer is yes.
1: Welcome to the very best part of my broadcast week. I'm Major Garrett. This is The Takeout. Thanks for hanging out with us. Thanks for finding the show, however you find it. Listen, folks, I told you four weeks ago that I would devote a considerable amount of attention of this show to the situation in Ukraine because the consequences for Europe, and the consequences for America, and the consequences for post-World War II security, and everything that we came to assume about that architecture of post-World War II security is now at risk. And what the civilized world decides to do about the risks posed to that architecture will matter for decades to come. Our focus this week will be about and beyond the great And this is not an exaggeration, ladies and gentlemen, humanitarian catastrophe that is playing out hour by hour inside Ukraine and on all neighboring countries receiving refugees. Our guest, David Miliband, who for a good period of time was an advisor to British Prime Minister Tony Blair. He was in Tony Blair's cabinet. He was British Foreign Secretary to Gordon Brown when he was Prime Minister. He is now the president and CEO of the International Rescue Committee, a post he's had for many times. He comes to us from New York The Right Honorable David Miliband, it's great to have you with us. Thank you, Major. Great to be with you. So, David, big picture. I saw that your organization, International Rescue Committee, put out this morning. We're recording this on Wednesday, April the 5th, Arden? 6th? 6th. April 6th. 7.1 million refugees from Ukraine. If at all possible, help my audience understand the contextual meaning of that number.
2: The crisis in Ukraine is obviously a political crisis, because every humanitarian emergency is in fact a political emergency, and it's an emergency that has transgressed the most basic norms of international law, but also, as we've seen in the unspeakable images and stories that have come out of various Ukrainian cities uh, over the last 48 hours, the most basic norms of human morality really i'm I'm sure we'll get to that Mm -hmm. i think the way for your listeners and viewers to understand this is to see that there are three fronts to the humanitarian campaign in ukraine and its surroundings one is for civilians in besieged cities or in cities under fire the most the poster child for that is Mariupol, obviously a city of 450,000 people in the south of the country southeast of the country, now 120,000 people left, uh, and a city without water, electricity, or heat for six weeks now, So, uh, with bombardment as well, but they're not the only ones. So there's, first of all, a set of enormous needs for people who were accountants or journalists or charity workers or housewives leading their own lives just six weeks ago. And they've got enormous health, food, survival needs. Second group is you get to people on the move inside the country. And that's much harder to count because they're not crossing a border. And that's where we think there's, there's 3 million, I think, um, in some estimates,
1: 5 million in others. Uh, and they and, are and people who... the way to think their... about those are displaced within country. That's the way to yes, think we call about it. Them.
2: them internally displaced people. They're refugees within their own country. So they've been forced out of their home because of the fighting, because they're scared for their lives. They're women and kids, remember, because the men are staying to fight. And so they're already going through the trauma of family separation. They don't know whether they'll see their husbands, their fathers, their brothers again. They don't know if they'll see their own homes again. Uh, But they are moving to safer areas. Now, obviously, the course of the war over the last week to two weeks means some are beginning to think about or even going back. But they're, they're people on the move inside their own country. They need cash support. They need trauma support. They need uh, health support. And then the third group, which is where you get to the technically the refugees themselves, four, yesterday the UN High Commission on Refugees said 4.3 million people had actually crossed a border, mainly yeah. Poland, but also uh, Moldova, Hungary, They've crossed into Europe as refugees, people who, for whom it's not safe to go home to their homeland. And that's the third front of the crisis. Those are people who are safe, so they don't need to be, quote unquote, protected from bombs, but they do have enormous needs. They have no notion where their future is going to be. They need support for their kids. They may have medical needs and International Rescue Committee, other agencies, we're working across all three fronts.
1: And I want the audience to know, for whatever it may be worth, I'm a supporter of the International Rescue Committee. I also give to other charities. You may find the work others do in Ukraine more valuable to you, but just for the purposes of this conversation, that's not why David is here, but I'm a supporter. I've been a supporter for many, many years, long before Ukraine was ever a battlefront, back when the IRC was focused heavily in Jordan and all those coming from the Syrian conflict and then fleeing into Europe as well. What is the work that you do? How do you handle these multifaceted, different kind of needs? Well, the origins of the organization give one clue. I mean, we were founded by Albert
2: Einstein in the 1930s in New York. He was, in a way, the world's most famous refugee. He was a refugee from the Nazis. He set up the International Rescue Committee after his letters to Roosevelt to admit Jews to America, persecuted minorities to America fell on relatively deaf ears. Einstein felt this terrible pain at his inability to shift policy, so he set up the IRC to do something. And our first employee actually was a journalist uh, major, um, a New York Times journalist, I hope I can mention them, who we employed to run a safe house in Marseille in occupied France in 1940, who issued 2,000 fake passports to help people escape from Nazi-occupied Europe, including people like Marc Chagall, um, extraordinary artist, so the, the history of the organization speaks to having real brain power as well as big hearts. And what we try to do is uh, really work in the most acute crises where people have their lives shattered by conflict and disaster. We're not an anti-poverty agency working in 150 countries. We work in the 30 to 35 countries where either there's a war or a conflict going on or where people are sheltering from war and conflict. Mm-hmm. And so Afghanistan, Syria... Gordon that you mentioned Somalia Bangladesh where there's a million refugees from Myanmar from uh, Burma and what do we do we help people survive recover and get some control of their lives survive that means healthcare that means water and sanitation we don't really do much food aid that's much more for the world food program we don't we're not really in, in that so there's a, a survival element of it there's a recovery element if you're a woman who has suffered unspeakable violence in emergencies which many do we help them recover. If you've got uh, wounds that need to be um, mental wounds or even sometimes physical rehabilitation, we can help uh, with that. And then gain control of your life, help you on the route to self-sufficiency, education, livelihoods. That's a growing part of our work for people whose lives are shattered by conflict and disaster. And we have about 17,000 employees around the world and about 20,000 volunteers, day, day support people who paid cash in for, for day, working for us the, during the day. One other part of this that I think makes the organization unique, we work across the arc of crisis from the war zone to the place where refugees go. But we also work in countries like the U.S. with the largest refugee resettlement agency in America, with 25
1: offices in towns and cities across America where refugees are coming to make a new life. And you help them with basics of that resettlement, places to live, Educational opportunities, assessing what may be available to them through social services, helping them land and not feel marooned in this strange new country. It's literally going to the
2: airport because Mm -hmm. they arrive with a a, a plastic bag. And our experience is that if you can get the kids into school and get the adults into work, you're going to have a generation of or multiple generations of productive and patriotic citizens. They can't get citizenship immediately. It takes five years. But America has historically had a bipartisan approach to saying that people who know the dangers of tyranny, my goodness, they value freedom. And when they make it to America, they definitely are not going to throw away their second chance.
1: No, they're not. David Biliband is our guest. More of our conversation about the IRC International Rescue Committee, Ukraine and related issues on the other side of this break. I'm Major Garrett. Segment two of The Takeout in just one moment.
0: From CBS News, this is The Takeout
1: with Major Garrett. Welcome back to The Takeout. David Miliband is our special guest, CEO and executive director of the International Rescue Committee. David, I had a rather lengthy preamble. Did you agree, disagree with anything I said about what Ukraine means writ large? I think that
2: Ukraine is a, 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 an event which is happening over weeks, but which will reverberate over decades. So I think you're right to both emphasize the extraordinary humanitarian need immediately, but also the the geopolitics, because this is about Europe, but it's also about America, it's about the West, it's about international law, and it's about the rise of impunity, which is the feature of the war zones where the International Rescue Committee works, that people who are combatants in battle, the countries but also non-state actors, are acting beyond the law without accountability. And that's what the that's what's at stake in this argument about how to manage international relations, but also how to handle this interconnected world that we live in.
1: And you served as British Foreign Secretary, as I mentioned. I'm going to get to a specific question about your relationship with Gordon Brown and what he's working on in a second. But I do believe the speech that President Vladimir Zelensky gave before the United Nations on April 5th I'll just say it for this period of time, for this year it will be the most important speech of this year. It might be the most important speech of the 21st century. I don't know, but it's a very important speech because he raised not only issues ongoing in Ukraine, but larger structural questions about the Security Council itself. And I want to read to our audience part of what he said. He's talking about, I come before you, United Nations, on behalf of the civilians who have died. Some were shot on the streets, I'm quoting directly. Others were thrown into wells where they suffered and died. They were killed in apartments and houses. Civilians were crushed by tanks while sitting in their cars on the side of the road. They cut off limbs, slashed their throats. Women were raped and killed in front of their children. They pulled out their tongues only because they did not hear them saying what they wanted to hear. How is this different from what the daish, which is one word for ISIS terrorists were doing in occupied areas, then here comes the answer, except that it is done by a permanent member of the United Nations Security Council, and one that destroys the internal unity of countries. And the question that President Zelensky put to the Security Council, and by extension, the entire United Nations is, if an aggressor who commits war crimes, has permanent veto power over doing anything about it. We do not have a system of international peace or security. Your thoughts?
2: Well, the first thought, uh, Major, is that I hope you're right that it's the most important speech of the year or the decade. But there's a danger it won't be because it will fade into history. So I think the first point to say is that there's a battle on on the one hand, to bury the speech, on the other hand, to elevate it. And we don't yet know what's going to win. It's conceivable. I mean, there have been other great speeches and they get forgotten. So where, where I would um, caveat what you said is to say that we'll, we'll know a lot about the world if this is seen as a seminal speech, as a turning point speech, but we'll also got to recognize it's a battle and it may not be because there are forces that do not want this to be a memorable speech or a speech that has uh, impact.
1: And they second don't want thing, that
2: question answered. Well, exactly. Now, the, the, the second thing is that international law should be supreme. But over the last 15 years, it's become increasingly optional. And it's become increasingly optional in conflict zones around the world, where the rights of individuals, civilians to life, could not be clear in international law, but the abrogation of those rights, the denial of those rights also could not be clearer. That is the ultimate definition of impunity. 70% of the people who die in war today are civilians. That is the fact that we have to come to terms with, and it's not an accident because they're being targeted as part of war strategies, not just by non-state actors, but also by powerful state actors. Now, there's then something that you just mentioned in passing, a permanent veto-wielding member of the Security Council, which does raise the stakes because there are five permanent members of the Security Council, as you know, the US, France, UK, China, Russia, the quote-unquote great powers of yesteryear of the post-Second World War period. And they're meant to have special responsibility to go with the special power. We've argued that in the light of the trends of the last 15 years, towards autocracy, towards the abuse of international law in conflict, the veto in the Security Council should be disposed of in cases of mass atrocity. So to say that mass atrocities, genocides are in a separate category, and the five members should forsake their veto power in that. Now, the UK actually hasn't used its veto since 1989. Uh, As foreign minister, I never use the veto, although, of course, the threat of the veto is a chiller as well as the actual use of the veto. You you know that. Well, France supports this, but neither the UK nor America nor China nor Russia is yet willing to say that even in cases of mass atrocity should the veto be put to one side. And that's why I think the challenge from President Zelensky is so profound, was essentially saying a system failure. Yes. If you can't rely on the people who uphold the system to sustain the system, then you haven't got a system. Yeah. And that's why the stakes are so high.
1: I want to ask you about Gordon Brown, because he is advocated for the creation of a tribunal to prosecute war crimes. I imagine in general, and it's probably not the role of your organization to opine on this directly, but maybe indirectly, you have some thoughts on that.
2: Yeah, I think that the call for accountability is absolutely right. We are non-political, neutral, impartial. That's Those are the the ru- the law, the rules of the humanitarian enterprise. But we also have a responsibility to bear witness to the abuse of power. We're not a prosecuting authority, but we can bear witness to the abuse of power. And this is a very well-documented crisis. This has not been done undercover. It's been done in full view of... Bellingcat or new york times satellites that are reporting on the facts and they can tell you where the when the bodies appeared on the roads and right. uh, and they can they can document that not, not to so mention
1: think, not to mention the civilians on the ground with their own cell phone cameras which exactly. is a new a dimension to this evidence gathering process so it appears to first me cell phone
2: war Look, we're in a whole new ball game and the transparency and the documentation does need to be used and there is something called universal jurisdiction which allows even those states that are not signatories either to the international criminal court or to other um, international treaties to be subject for individuals to be subject to the dictates of universal jurisdiction and to be prosecuted for crimes now just to give you one example the german government has used evidence from german ngos to prosecute syrian generals for war crimes in syria mm-hmm. and so i'm very comfortable saying that accountability for alleged war crimes is absolutely central to a functioning order, because if people think they can get away with anything, they will do anything. They will murder civilians. They will use chemical weapons. And that's the anarchy that we face if we're not careful.
1: And David, for those who might be uncertain about a definitional construct, help them understand what a war crime is and what makes it a war crime. Is it an order of magnitude? Is it the disposition of the victim?
2: It's serious violation of international law. So, for example, international law guarantees the rights to life of civilians in conflict. If you're a soldier in a conflict, you don't have a right to life. But if you're a civilian in a conflict, you have a right to life. And it's a responsibility of combatants in war to uphold that right to life. And what international law shows is that serious breaches of international law constitute war crimes. And so if you bomb a hospital, that's a war crime mm-hmm. because there are civilians inside. And uh, there's often dancing around this. Sometimes uh, countries say, well, the civilians were in, were, were next door to the uh, soldiers. So we we were trying to kill the soldiers and we end up killing civilians. That's no excuse mm-hmm. because the requirement of international law is absolute. Now, the world came to this definition by harsh lessons not by accident this hasn't always been the case it was only after 1945 right that international law geneva conventions were put into international law and given the full force of international law and there have been tribunals there was a tribunal in the Hague on the uh, former Yugoslavia There have been, there is the establishment of the international criminal court the United States is not actually a member of the international criminal court the UK right. is mm-hmm. uh, and the truth is, in the same way, I always use the example.
1: A- David, David, I'll tell you what, let me, let, me, let me stop you right there. We need to run to a quick break, because I, I, that's a good example, and I want to have the audience get full measure of that. On the other side of this break, David Miliband. Thank you very much. Uh, the Takeout, segment three coming up. This
0: episode is brought in part to you by Audible, your go-to destination for thrilling audio entertainment. Whether you're looking for a hair-raising experience to enjoy while you're on the move, New members can try Audible free for 30 days. Just visit audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. That's audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to
1: 500-500.
0: From CBS News, this is The Takeout
1: with Major Garrett. Welcome back to The Takeout. David Miliband, our special guest, was in mid-thought, but interruptions for breaks. Had to intervene. I apologize for that. David, can please continue. The international system without law is like
2: traffic without traffic lights. Any city in America, if there are no traffic lights, you're going to have chaos. That's the way I see international law in international relations. There are two fundamental aspects that are established by the UN Charter. One, the territorial integrity of states, And on the other hand, the rights of individuals. And for the first time in human history, on the basis of harsh lessons, those rights were established after 1945. And the question is, will we defend them? Because at the moment, they're in retreat.
1: And David, I'd like your thoughts on something else that President Zelensky said and others have said. Look, there was evidence in Syria. There was evidence in Chechnya. There was evidence in Georgia. And nothing was done. And because nothing was done, there is, if not complicity, some accountability on those within the international community who did not apply accountability or harsher accountability for those events which now look to be playing out in a larger magnitude in Ukraine.
3: Well,
2: you know the expression, if you give them an inch, they'll take a mile, or at least that's a a British English expression. I don't know if it's an American English expression. (laughs) But the, the truth is that impunity feeds on itself. And that is the danger that we confront now. Now, 2014, the invasion of Crimea, the invasion of eastern Ukraine was a warning, but so was the use of chemical weapons. Syria, frankly, one of my greatest regrets as foreign minister, I went with the French foreign minister to the Jaffna Peninsula, where there were Tamil civilians in Sri Lanka being bombed by their own government. And that was in 2009. And so, There is a a syndrome here that from a high point of around 2005-6, when 193 countries of the United Nations signed up to something called Responsibility to Protect. If your government's not protecting you, the international system will protect you. We've been in retreat from that. And that's why I call the current period the Age of Impunity, when essentially the strong can do what they like, and the rest of us have to put up with what we get. And that's the danger.
1: And your thoughts, David, on the very legitimate anxiety within european capitals and to a certain degree the biden white house about escalation because escalation is not a nominal concern in a nuclear age and if you are as your organization is or any civilized person is conscious of the damage and destruction that would come from escalation that involves nuclear weapons you have to take that into account how does that limit or not limit or is the west prematurely limiting itself in ways that might, for its long-term interests and for the interests, short, medium, and long-term of Ukraine, working against itself?
2: Well, look, we're a connected world. And the idea that there is such a thing as, quote-unquote, tactical nuclear weapons that are used just for part of the world, I think is very dangerous. So your words of caution are very well merited. And the way in which the Biden administration, I think, frankly, handled the goading that came from President Putin about Uh, nuclear exchange was well-merited. And I think what we've discovered in this crisis is that there are uh, military uh, weapons of defence that are very important, but there are also non-military weapons. I mean, the economic weapons that have been discovered are real. Uh, The trouble is, Europe is too dependent on Russian oil and gas and has been for some time. That's a good example of the kind of preemptive steps that weren't taken and have uh, created an imbalance of power that is dangerous. And there is an economic engine behind the war machine that is um, trading off that dependence.
1: I want to ask you about something else that President Zelensky said in his speech to the United Nations, because it's something that your organization is, I'm sure, conscious of now and trying to prepare to the degree that it can and other organizations, specifically those dealing with food related issues. Uh, Let me quote from the speech again. This is President Zelensky speaking of the Russian government. They support hatred at the state level and seek to export it to other countries through their system of propaganda and political corruption. They provoke a global food crisis that could lead to famine in the countries of Africa and Asia and will surely leave large-scale political chaos in countries where food price stability is a key factor in domestic security. this is really important.
2: If if your listeners go to rescue.org, which is the IRC website, you'll see that we're talking about crises, yes, in Ukraine, but also in the Horn of Africa, around Ethiopia, in the Sahel region of sub-Saharan Africa, in the Middle East, where the Syria crisis that you mentioned earlier, there are still 6 million refugees from the Syria crisis, 1.5 million of them in Lebanon, 600,000 of them in Jordan. Now, all of those crises are impacted directly by the Ukraine crisis because of Ukraine and Russia's position, not just in the world food business, but in the world fertilizer business. Both of those countries are fundamental. 75% of Egypt's grain comes from Ukraine. 30% of the world food program's grain comes from Ukraine. I think I read 90% of the world's fertilizer comes from uh, Russia. So or must be certain parts of the world. So you've got very significant dependence of the global system. And I was on a call today, 6th of April, with our team in the Middle East, Syria, Iraq, Mm -hmm. Lebanon, Jordan, Yemen. These are countries where the ripple effects of the Ukraine crisis are really going to be keenly felt because there's a simple reason for you or I an increase in food prices is an increase in our food bill. But if you're someone on the precipice and you're forced to take a step back, it's very, very dangerous indeed. And there are large parts of the world where food insecurity, not knowing where your next meal is coming from, is a feature of daily life. In uh, Yemen, just to take that as one example, 17 million people uh, classified as deeply food insecure. Afghanistan, you know about. And so the rise in food prices couldn't come at a worse time, because it's got, it's associated with the rise in energy prices, which also is it's associated with a rise in global interest rates, increasing debt repayments. So all of that makes for a very dangerous brew.
1: So David, I'd like your thoughts. Um, like many uh, Americans, particularly those of us in journalism in Washington and New York, I take a lot of intellectual cues, or at least filter them through the great newspaper, it calls itself, but I refer to it as a magazine, The Economist. And I want to show you two covers of The Economist. This is The Economist cover, February 26th to March 4th. Where will he stop? Putin, where will he stop? This is last week's cover, The Economist. Why Ukraine Must Win. That's two fundamentally different orientations to the conflict. The first orientation, where will he stop? Meaning Putin. Putin has all the control. A month or five weeks later, the cover story is Why Ukraine Must Win. In councils of government in Europe, do you believe there is now a conversation, or should there be if there isn't, that the goal here must be Ukraine wins, not merely survives?
2: Well, I think the question has changed, not because of anything that Europeans have done, but because of what the Ukrainians have done. And the question five weeks ago was, how long will it take for Russia to win? Now the question is, how long will it take for Russia to lose? And that's a very, very significant change. And it's born of incredible blood and treasure spilt by Ukrainians. But obviously, the retreat that the Russian forces have made from Kiev and from their war aims is significant. Now, they also still have large parts of the east of the country. They're threatening parts of the south of the country. Uh, and there's bombing continuing into Odessa, extraordinary historic uh, city. Uh, just a few miles from here, there's a Ukrainian-American population with roots in Odessa. And I'm in New York, uh, speaking to you from New York. So I think the question has changed. And in that sense, the uh, forward march of impunity has been halted. And that's a very significant moment. Also, the divisions in the West have been uh, not uh, ended, but there has been a rally, a unification of Western opinion. But there's no room for complacency because around the world there are countries that are sitting on the fence, and right. that don't want to take a side. And I think it's very important that we say, as a, a and I say as a representative of a, a non-political NGO, you've got to be on the side of the rule of law. An invasion of one country by another is a breach of the rule of law, the killing of civilians is a breach of the rule of law, and we all depend on the international rule of law. And I think that the, it's, a, it's a very significant moment that there is more confidence in Europe that there is a wider range of outcomes than the speed of the Russian victory. But there's also fear that this is a long haul, not a short one. And I agree with that.
1: That is the voice of David Miliband, our special guest. He is the president and CEO of the International Rescue Committee. He will be back for segment four and segment five, the Especial. So stay tuned for that. I'm Major Garrett. Back with you in just one second.
0: At Amica Insurance, we know it's more than just a car. CBS News. This is The Takeout
1: with Major Garrett. Continuing our conversation with David Miliband of the International Rescue Committee, formerly British Foreign Secretary, longtime advisor to then Prime Minister Tony Blair of the British government. He was Foreign Secretary for Gordon Brown. So he's deeply experienced in all of these related issues and the power dynamics behind them. So, David, um, what is it... That the West and the larger observing world should conclude from what has been described as, if not a military failure by Russia, something approaching a military failure, meaning Russia's military wasn't as swift, wasn't as organized, wasn't as competent, wasn't as capable as assumed. What does that mean?
2: Well, one, the intelligence was
1: correct on this occasion. And remember, the intelligence
2: predicted the invasion. And that's important. Secondly, we've got to confront deterrence didn't work. I'm not sure if we even knew our own strength, but we certainly didn't manage to convey that strength to the other side, because they didn't believe that there would be a reaction of the kind that there has been. Thirdly, America learned a harsh lesson in Iraq and Afghanistan. So did the UK. If you're seen as an occupier, it's very hard to have control. And that is a lesson that has been relearned by Russia because, of course, the Soviet Union learned that in Afghanistan in the 1980s. Fourthly, I think there is an open question, but I hope we relearn the power of our own values. We can complain about all sorts of aspects of free societies, but when you're threatened with having your freedom taken away, the Ukrainians have shown what it means to them and and what it means to stand up for them. I think there's another thing, though, which is that disunity in the West is costly because it prevents our own actions, it stifles strategy, and it encourages other countries to think they can get away with what they shouldn't do. And that, I think, is a very significant lesson. It's been uh, quite a a very difficult decade for the West since the financial crisis, 2008. Uh, We've been consumed by our own issues, but there's no holiday from history. And history shows that the world is more connected, whether you think of COVID, whether you think of economic crisis, whether you think of military conflagration. And an unmanaged world is a threat to our well-being and our interests, not just to our values.
1: And is it imaginable in your mind in a month, two months, that... Ukrainians continue to fight. They are fortified by the West. The President Zelensky's request will not in every respect be fulfilled in terms of armaments, but let's say 80% fulfilled. Can you imagine a scenario in two months where Putin has to sue for peace because this is unraveled and he is the one who is seeking a way out, not the Ukrainians?
2: Well, I wish I could just say yes to that. Mm-hmm major. But I think we have to steel ourselves for something much longer. I think Mm -hmm. that remember, it's eight years since the invasion of uh, Crimea and the east of Ukraine.
1: Which took took before this invasion some 16,000 lives.
2: Yeah, and actually had two million people displaced. Just to go back to where we started the conversation about the humanitarian needs, two million people displaced from their homes by the um, invasion of eastern Ukraine in 2014. So continuing to be displaced. So I, I think that you know we're all armchair in the danger of being armchair generals. and I don't want to fall into that. But I, I feel that this is long term, not short term, not least because the bet from President Putin is that the West doesn't have staying power. And so I think that it's important to say to your listeners that this is not going to be over quickly, according to the best estimates. I think this is a long haul and it's the longest haul for Ukrainians. But the Europe has given the European Union has offered every Ukrainian who arrives three years residency, three years work permits, three years education, three years social services. I think that's more uh, prudent than to bank on a, a, a quick end to this.
1: But, you know, that also and, and that's an incredibly generous uh, offer of temp- temporary protective status, uh, which the European Union has offered. Uh, the European Union adv- ambassador of the United States, Davros Lambrinidis, basically said that was going to happen on our show several weeks ago, a day before it actually happened. Um, But I wonder if that isn't what Putin wants. Uh, Lots of Ukrainians to leave Ukraine and the ones who remain nominally uh, associated with Russia and okay with it, and he has a less of a difficulty occupying. Well, I think it's going to be very hard for him to occupy uh,
2: certainly west of the Dnieper River right. actually he's gone for, for a long way east but you look at those pictures from Mariupol i mean right. how is that city ever going to be rehabilitated right. i mean it's a it's a testimony to cruelty and sadism of an
1: absolutely appalling kind it cannot become a russianized mariupol in the future it simply won't the memories will be too deep i mean it's, it's i mean but the the danger is that it's it's
2: rubble mm-hmm. it's rubble right. it's 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 physical rubble, but it's also human rubble, and it's the rubble of dreams and lives. And it's not it's not quite, it's not it's not right to compare it to Chernobyl in some ways, because Chernobyl was a nuclear accident, yes, was then a depopulated area. But the the the, the damage is immense. But for the rest of the country, uh, there's there's a government, there's an economy, um, there's a question of how it is set up for long-term resilience and that's really i think the looming question
1: and if i sense you accurately and i'll let you articulate this in your own words this redeployment eastward means everyone should prepare themselves for the russians to consolidate eastern ukraine and then gradually move west as it can but they're not leaving and it's going to be a grinding, bloody affair from what it currently considers occupied eastern Ukraine and every attempt it makes to move that west and south.
2: I think that's got to be the, the the central case. Now, we should have taken literally and seriously the buildup that happened before February the 24th, as the intelligence agencies in this case mm-hmm. correctly Predicted And as the Russian government denied, they denied any suggestion. I mean, Sergei Lavrov was my opposite number as foreign minister. Uh, He denied absolutely bluntly that there was any intention of an invasion. Uh, So uh, the fact that the troops will be there, the fact they will consolidate, does mean that the threat remains. But remember, they've also got the experience of the last five or six weeks. And that means that they will be consolidating carefully before they make any preemptive moves. And the, uh, the vigilance is necessary, but so is the, the sense that there's been a very significant rebuff delivered in the last six weeks. And that's why you're seeing more confidence in uh, Kyiv and elsewhere. Now, there are th- the, the geography of this, you, you saw this, that Ukraine was effectively surrounded, and the fact that Belarus in the north should be within the Russian sphere so strongly. And the fact that the South is still uh, under Russian control from Crimea means there remains real danger. And so the military dynamics of this, I think, are very open. You said continued danger of creeping. I think we don't yet know what the military
1: tactics are going to be. We don't yet know. That is the voice of David Milband. CEO and executive director of the International Rescue Committee. For our radio audience, we need to say farewell for those watching on CBS News streaming and listening on all our podcast platforms. Stay tuned for the Takeout Outtake Especial. I'm Major Garrett. We'll see you next week.
3: What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing new passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So, what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more.
0: From CBS News, this is The Takeout
1: with Major Garrett. Welcome to your Takeout Outtake Especial. I'm Major Garrett. Our special guest, David Miliband, former British Foreign Secretary, longtime advisor to British Prime Minister Tony Blair. He is currently the president and CEO of the International Rescue Committee. David, for those who've been listening, and I'm sure they have been, uh, let them know, how do they find your organization? How do they donate if they are so motivated?
2: Yeah, I hope people will go and read what our teams around the world are seeing and what they're doing. They just go to rescue.org, www.rescue.org.
1: Very good. Uh, we ended the fourth segment on sort of a harrowing note of uncertainty about the military dynamics ahead. Uh, let me ask you, uh, not in a pollyanna way, but in a realistic way. Do you have an optimistic scenario for Ukraine?
2: Well, yes, uh, both relatively and absolutely. I mean, relatively, six weeks ago or five weeks ago, Ukraine was facing occupation.
1: And it now decapitation of its government and a puppet regime and everything else.
2: Yeah. So what you can say now is that Ukraine has the prospect that it will remain an independent, sovereign state and its people will remain free people in the majority of the country. Still the important cities in the east and in the south. Secondly, Ukraine is now imprinted on the global consciousness in a new way. And its leadership also has significant leverage in europe and in elsewhere and there won't be um, many european leaders or american leaders who are able to turn away from ukraine it's rallied significant support actually probably hasn't got much coverage in the u.s but the commitments to rebuilding Mm -hmm. are as significant from europe as the commitments to the refugees that are being made in the short term thirdly Uh, Ukraine is part of a bigger picture. I went to Kyiv in 2008 as UK Foreign Secretary after the invasion of uh, Georgia by Russia. And I uh, quoted George Kennan, an extraordinary American Mm -hmm. statesman, who said, Russia's tragedy is always to look at Ukraine and see either a vassal or an enemy. And it's a brilliant quote. And it's been played out in history. And what I said was, The West should partner with Ukraine, always recognizing that Ukraine will need a partnership with Russia. Because of geography, it's doomed to always be Russia's neighbor. But it needs to be strong enough to have a relationship that is of equals, not of um, vassal. And uh, that is so much more difficult uh, now, but it behooves uh, the West to help Ukraine live up to that. And there is an interesting uh, debate going on now because People don't know this. Austria is a member of the European Union, but it's not a member of NATO. You know this, Mm -hmm. but a a lot of people don't know this. It's already being floated that Ukraine should become a member of the European Union with the economic strength that comes with that, even if it's not going to be a member of NATO. And that represents, I think, a new front in this thinking about the economic and security architecture in Europe that is so important to the transatlantic relationship as well as to global stability.
1: Right. And if that were sped up and uh, the approval process were less bureaucratized, I think many would salute that uh, just as a side benefit of bringing Ukraine and the European Union. <laughs> That's a side issue, of course. But, all right, David, one thing we do on this program, we've done this for the entirety of our nearly six years. Every guest, we ask three threshold questions. And I think our audience will be delighted to hear I your got no answers. No warning
2: of this. This is going to be interesting. No
1: How warning. This is good. This is great. I'm going to spring this on you. So take these questions in whatever order you prefer the most influential book in your life or one of the most influential books in your life, all time favorite movie or one of your favorite movies. And if you're going to be uh, on a long drive or a long flight and you're really going to enjoy some music, I mean, really enjoy it. And I know because of your spouse, classical music looms large. What kind of music artist, or genre are you most likely to listen to?
2: So, um, 12 angry men was uh, my, was an incredible
1: movie that I, I, I watched
2: Henry Fonda, 30 years ago rather dates me. I mean, it wasn't made 30 years ago. It was it was my dad's generation or my mom's generation, rather than Mm -hmm. my generation. But it's an extraordinary and impactful movie. But it's also a very American movie. And so I think it's nice to be able to highlight um, that for uh, for for this uh, audience. Uh, In terms of uh, the influential book, I'm going to give you a British uh, answer. Please. And there's a, there's a book uh, called, uh, called, the and it speaks to my professional life rather than to my personal life. Um, there's a book called The Progressive Dilemma by uh, David Marquand, who is a Labour MP. And it speaks to the reality that the Labour Party, which is my party, has been out of power for most of the last 120 years. And it diagnoses uh, some of the reasons for that. Essentially, the Liberal Party that opposed the Conservative Party in the 19th century, was superseded by the Labour Party. And the progressive dilemma is that the Liberal Party and the Labour Party never found a way to merge their culture and their ideas. Mm-hmm. And so they kept on losing, and that's still being played out. It that was very influential in my political career. In terms of music, my constituency in um, the northeast of England was South Shields, and the most one of the most famous people to come from North Shields was Sting. And so I think uh, Sting <laughs> would be a pretty good... Um, pretty good uh, companion on the on the road and he's uh, become a friend in the in the course of time uh, amazing guy but as you said my wife is a violinist and so um i um, i i have to defer to, to her interest we have this phrase in in the uk you know don't take someone on a busman's holiday so a busman right. is a bus driver and you wouldn't want a bus driver to have to go driving so i don't want to have to say that she's got to listen to classical music on on a on a long drive so i'll probably stick with sting but we would definitely have classical music on spotify
1: very good david Miliband. it's been a pleasure it is not a, a pleasurable topic to be sure but your insight and your perspective is incredibly valuable for my audience i want to thank you for the time and the effort and we'll keep in thank touch You very much thank you very, very much Major.
2: we'll see thank we'll you. see you
1: Thanks, everyone. We'll see you next week. The Takeout is produced by Arden Fari, Jamie Benson, Sarah Cook, Ellie Watson, Jake Rosen, and Ashley Armstrong.
0: CBSN production by Eric Susanan. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Takeout Podcast. That's at Takeout Podcast. And for more, go to TakeoutPodcast.com. The Takeout is a production of CBS News.
1: If you like the takeout, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at Wondery.com survey.
3: It was the biggest scandal in pop music. The stars of Milli Vanilli, the Grammy-winning multi-platinum R&B phenomenon, were exposed as frauds, but none of this was their idea. So whose idea was it? Enter German music producer Frank Farian. He saw the success of acts like Michael Jackson and Prince, and he wanted in, no matter the cost. So he devised the perfect pop heist and not the man pulling the strings. Follow Blame It on the Fame, Millie Vanilli, on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can binge all episodes of Blame It on the Fame early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus.
0: The Hargan women seemed to have it all. We were blessed. My mom was amazing. But detectives would soon discover... Inside the house, there were the bodies of two women. A story of betrayal you would struggle to believe if it wasn't true.